From Hype HQ in Chicago, Illinois, Startup Hype Man presents the Goat to Market Show. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Raj Nation, the founder and chief pitch artist of Startup Hype Man. This podcast is where we bring you founders, company leaders, and creatives who are building it, who are doing it, who have been there and done that. And they pull back the curtain on their go-to-market strategies so that you can build a venture that you love and become the GOAT of your industry. Want first listen on episodes before anyone else? Subscribe to our newsletter at StartupHypeMan.com. You will get alerts every Sunday morning when we release new episodes. All right, let's hear how today's guest is becoming the GOAT. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Houston, Texas. Currently living in Chicago, Illinois, however, working nomadically out of Cancun, Mexico. She is the founder and CEO of Cyber Pop-Up. Please welcome Dr. Christine Izuaco. Oh my gosh. Thank you for the welcome. I have never been introduced like that before. And I want you to come and introduce me everywhere that I go from now on. Please. I always tell our guests, you will get just that introduction as a, as a clip sent to you after the episode goes live. So you can just, any meeting you enter, you can just play that clip as you, as in any, any, any room you walk into. I will, I will do that. I look forward to getting this clip. I might even play it in the morning when I wake up just to hype myself up. <laughs> well, um, as I mentioned, she is Dr. Christine Iswakor, founder and CEO of Cyber Pop-Up. Cyber Pop-Up is a cybersecurity marketplace that is connecting small and medium-sized businesses to one of the biggest emerging threats or challenges that they're facing, and that is having a dedicated cybersecurity professional handling some of their biggest challenges as it relates to potentially their server getting hacked or failing their latest uh, uh, server or security audit and the many other things facing this growing pain and inside of this market. Now, today's topic with Christine is winning big money pitch competitions. Christine has won $250,000 in pitch competitions in the past, and that was over the course of a single year. Now, full disclosure, Christine and Cyber Pop-Up are past clients of Startup Hype Man, but I wanted to bring Christine on just to share her perspective of what it's like to prepare for these events and be on stage and actually like what does it take to, to win money and not, not just apply to these things, but actually win these events as well. So once again, Christine, um, thank you for being on the show, winning big money pitch competitions. Real quick, why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you? Why do you think it's important for others? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again. Really excited to be here and um, and just like so appreciative of the entire journey that it took to, to get us here, including uh, a lot of those uh, critical wins. Um, so, yeah, I think this topic is really important because for any startup to really grow um, and reach its full potential, right, you need backing, you need funding, oftentimes in the beginning before you get traction that you can prove to um, to raise through venture fun, uh, venture capital rounds and things like that, you need that initial kind of seed or you need that initial kind of um, money. For me, uh, I didn't have the friends and family uh, access and like folks to people who could just write me a check for a certain amount of, of money. And so 
finding creative ways to be able to still fund my business was really important. And so I think this is top of mind for me because I've done it and I know how much of a struggle it is. And I know that tons of other founders struggle with this as well. And so, um, so yeah, I'm just excited to share as much um, information and insight as, um, as I can, because I know that whether you're, um, you know, just starting out and you don't have that friends and family, or you're a little bit further along and you're just trying to get exposure, right? Pitch competitions are a great way to do that. And so, so yeah, excited to, to dig in here. Right on. We're going to get a whole lot more into that, but first let's learn a little bit more about you, Christine. Now you are the youngest student and the first ever African or the first, I should say, African-American woman to earn a PhD in security engineering, which is obviously no small feat. At what point in life did you realize I'm going to work on this very, very niche category of computers? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so it was after a uh, huge failure that I'm very thankful for. So I started out trying to be an eye doctor um, and I ended up failing very badly at that. And so I started exploring and trying to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to do with my career. And I mean, I tried everything. I was being very random from like um, getting into accounting to, um, I don't know, biology. There were just all kinds of different things that I, I was trying. And I came across the cybersecurity space and just fell in love with it because it was um, fun to me. It was something that just like didn't feel like uh, work. It almost felt like uh, I was able to play games and stuff and just couldn't believe that I would be paid to do such a thing. And so, so yeah, that's how I discovered the cybersecurity space and uh, yeah, just fell in love with it. Were you like into video games growing up or like, did you ever identify as a gamer? No, no, not at all. But I think that there's, when I say games, it's like, I liked puzzles. And I feel like sometimes uh, there's a, a puzzle element. There's another thing that um, I mentioned this the other day, and I didn't realize how crazy it sounded until I said it out loud. One of the first assignments that I had on security in the past was like, how we had to learn how to break into a house and we had to learn how to like break into things. Yeah. And so to me, like, it was just so interesting that something that people tend to see as like this, like criminal, like bad thing, which it is right. But it's like, in order to defend against those things, you have to understand how attackers do them. And so being taught how to do these things to use it for good, which is very intriguing to me. Speaking of using things for good, just I'm just curious, what is your stance or what's your current belief on AI and how prevalent it seems to be becoming? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think that there's pros and cons to everything. And I feel like with AI, um, it's becoming a lot more of a mainstream conversation today. Um, I've been having conversations around the risks of AI, especially within cybersecurity for years now. And so I think that I appreciate that um, some of these conversations are being brought to the to the forefront. Um, I think that there are a lot of very positive use cases for um, for artificial intelligence, especially in the cybersecurity space, space when you think about how it can empower us to um, uh, identify and find threats in a pr more predictive way, um, way better than any human being ever could, right? But then on the flip side, it also just like um, amplifies all of the bad things that people are able to use um, AI to do from like the deep fakes and, you know, all of the scams and some of the really scary, you know, things that we're, we're seeing today. And so I know that is a very like wishy-washy answer, but there is some good, there's definitely some scary and, and bad things that, that can happen. And I think we'll continue to see that grow. On the note of the deep fakes, I think uh, next year, the 2024 
presidential election is going to be very interesting because I already foresee how much um, how much political propaganda will be used to create deep fakes of different candidates actually not saying something, but you can doctor the video to make it look, look like they did say it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that even like when you look at that use case across all industries, right, from people faking kidnappings to um, there's the um, other side of like confessions to crimes is another one that someone, you know, brought up the other day of like if somebody's able to make a deep fake of somebody confessing to a crime that wow. looks very real, it's very hard to then it's like when you do have real content, how do you distinguish what is real versus fake? Like it's an entire like it could go down so many different rabbit holes <laughs> here. Yeah. Well, yeah. like to to the point of cyber secure or cyber pop-up and the need for cybersecurity in some cases, I think this is this I think outlines the growing need for mm-hmm. your company's platform and protecting, you know, I think a, a major enterprise company like United, which is where you used to work, um, you know, they may have a lot of money they can throw behind their cybersecurity efforts on a daily basis, but you take the average small business and it's not on their list of things to to keep the lights on or to um or you know they think about sales and marketing right and and delivering the product or service but all those things are going to get cannibalized real quick if anyone can just essentially ruin the business's reputation overnight mm-hmm. yeah exactly exactly and i think that when you when you think about the uh, like systemic issue around that, right? The large companies have the budget and the resources and the things like that to invest in this. Small companies don't. And small companies make up majority of the business ecosystem, right? Such a huge piece of it. And so, um, so yeah, it's just very important for us to continue to focus on how we address this very, I think, underserved and historically overlooked area that I think we that that is no longer an option anymore. Mm-hmm. So let's, Talk a little bit more about Cyber Pop-Up itself. I gave a very brief introduction at the beginning, but can you just quickly talk through like how you got to this point of starting Cyber Pop-Up and just give us a little bit more full description of, of what the company is? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I've been in the security industry for quite a bit, uh, 12 years now. And through all of that experience, I got exposure to uh, um, a lot of challenges, but one being that to what you've mentioned before, a lot, every company has some form of technology and data today. It is inevitable, even if you're just accepting invoices being paid, like you have some form of technology, mm-hmm. um, which means that you have some form of cyber risk. And so in realizing that, and then understanding that, again, working in United Airlines, we had budget, we had a huge team of folks, and I was still struggling to, to one, like, attract and get the right uh, talent in, but then also to play catch up with a lot of these, uh, with, with a lot of these risks. Um, and so I knew that if that was the environment for such a large company, then any small company had to be struggling 10 times as, as hard, if not more. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I focused on that problem. And I think it's important to, of course, focus on the problem before you think about the solution. Um, but the way that the cyber pop-up solution kind of like came into play here is that as a cybersecurity professional, I also noticed that nonprofits were getting um, hacked by attackers and that got under my skin. 
um, because these folks are out here trying to do good in the world and people are going after them. And so I personally started going out and freelancing and trying to help them and realize that that's a model that can scale. You know, I'm not the only professional who wants to, to do this, right? There are um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of security professionals. And so, um, so yeah, the way that the actual model came together is realizing that um, at the end of the day, these businesses just need to be connected to a professional who can help them. And so if we build this army of cybersecurity professionals and get them uh, connected to the right folks, um, that goes a long way in reducing some of the cyber risk for uh, for small businesses. And so, um, so yeah, that's where the, that, the idea came into play. And then I think like any, I'm happy to dig into this more, but like any founder who has an idea and like doesn't know where to start, I had never started a company before, didn't know what I was doing. Um, and so I think I did what any... Um, uh, founder would do and just started trying to learn as, as, as much as possible and jump in as much as possible. And again, I'm happy to, to dig into the, the specifics there, but, um, but yeah, I went from not knowing, uh, anything or not knowing what I, I was doing at all to a point where I will never claim to know everything, of course, but when I look at where I am today, it is light years ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I often tell people, um, when I recount your story is that, I think you did one of the most intelligent things that a lot of founders overlook, which is you got this off the ground through service. Literally, like you were the you were the platform at first, right? You executing this as a freelance, yeah. or then I think from there, if I'm not mistaken, finding some other freelancers and connecting companies to those freelancers, right? Like you operated as the marketplace or the platform at first, um, and I think that's such a great way to be able to test the validity of something while also. Mm-hmm you know, not waiting for technology to be built to generate some revenue in the process. And I always just think that's such a good model to follow. Yeah. And I'll say like that, um, I cannot take credit for just like coming up with that from the beginning. (laughs) Um, That is something that I kind of like learned and was like forced into that worked out. And so I think that's a good lesson for for me. And I think for, for others too, of like, trusting the process because initially when I had this idea, I created like, okay, this is exactly the the product that I want to build. I made it very pretty. I went and got quotes. I was told that it was going to cost something like a hundred thousand dollars to build. I of course didn't have a hundred thousand dollars to laying around (laughs) to build it. I tried to get a little bit of funding from uh, like investors that didn't work. And so I was kind of forced to be like, okay, if I'm not going to be able to build this system today, like what can I do to get this off the ground? And that's when I started to get into like, okay, I need to do this manually. I need to figure this out on my own. I need to build out through like low code solutions. Like what are things that I can take together to make this work? And in reality, that was such a good process to go through because had I invested the money to build that product initially without really having insight and knowing too much, I would have spent a lot of money on something that would have looked completely different once I learned those lessons. And so I think that going through that process was actually very beneficial. Of course. Of course. You learn the customer language, you learn what they want, what they don't want, et cetera. So in this come up here, uh, you know, and our, our primary topic today is winning big money in these pitch competitions, which you've done. Um, when in this journey, did you first start to even think about like, like, like was it, I want to raise capital. So I'm going to first enter pitch competitions or was it more like I need money? So let me enter. Like, I just need money to fund this thing. So let me enter pitch competitions. Yeah. Yeah. It was more of, I need money to, fu- to fund these things. So let me enter pitch competitions. But I think the, the 
benefits and the views on that sort of evolved uh, over time. I can still remember, though, the very first time I even saw a pitch competition beyond like watching Shark Tank and things like that and seeing people pitch. Um, I this was before I, I was even thinking about starting a cyber pop up. I remember seeing a um, pitch competition at a happy hour. And I think the prize may have been like, I don't know, $5,000, $10,000, something like that. And I remember going in being so scared for the people who were pitching and just being so nervous. And like, I, I used to hate public speaking, like it, it scared the life out of me. And so, so yeah, I just remember seeing that and thinking to myself, man, I could never do that. Or like, man, like that's gotta be crazy. Mm. And it's like to have that experience and then switch to like actually seeing the first pitch competition that I actually applied, had the courage to apply to. Um, that was a, uh, a journey. And I found that pitch competition through 1871. So let's yeah. break down this into three phases. There is applying for the competition. There mm-hmm. is actually pitching in it. And then let's say the third phase would be like the Q and a that happens after your pitch is done, which most competitions yep. have. So mm-hmm. starting with the application process, um, I think, you know, like this is the, this is the, the upfront screening for if you're going to get in or not. So if, so companies are thinking about, oh, I should apply, you know, as long as they meet whatever the criteria is, you know, they're like, oh, I, I should apply for this. Um, any tips or tricks on how to have an application that's going to be attractive to the people selecting? Um, yeah, I think that a couple of things that I, did when um, pulling applications together is there's some very common questions within these applications, right? About your company, like what's your attraction? And so I think having a document where I very intentionally sat down and pulled together what is the what is me putting my best foot forward that I could use as a template to then um, customize for each application because ideally you're applying for, uh, you're not applying for just like, oh, I see one pitch competition application. And I like that. No, you're, if you're really playing this game, you're applying for a lot of them, whatever you qualify for, you want it to be on your radar and you want to apply for it. And so I think that becomes more efficient when you have that full list. And then the the second thing that I'll say is adding uh, personality, even in writing in the initial application, I think was very important to me. And when I would do, um, in some cases, like follow up interviews to those, or like when people would be like, Hey, we want to get on a call and talk to you. One of the things that I feel like a, a few people pointed out is I could see your personality shine through in your application. And I could see that you cared about more than just um, sort of like the bottom line or business that this is a true passion. And so I think there's things that you can do if you're, it has to be genuine, of course, right? But you would want any founder to be really passionate about what they're building. I think finding ways to intentionally make that um, uh, come through helps a lot. And then, yeah, explaining sort of the the impact beyond money. Like, why are you here? Like, why do you, why do you care about this? And it's only when you can articulate why you care that I, as an applicant application reviewer, you know, in that case should care. Yeah. What was your, you know, why you cared sort of mini story that they believe that they were buying into? Yeah, sure. So there's two pieces. Like there's my personal story of like, for me, it was really getting under my skin that these businesses are getting um, uh, attacked and nobody's really fending for them, the small businesses. And so um, there's that element of me in the beginning, just putting in my free time and free effort, not getting paid anything just because I wanted to help that I think made a a difference there. But then the second piece is for me, um, 
as a black woman in cybersecurity, I had experienced some, I think, uh, unique um, journeys throughout my career, especially early on. And I became very passionate about making sure that whatever I touched, whether it was in my former career or in this company, influences increasing diversity in cybersecurity. That is a personal uh, mission to me. And I think it's something that impacts the greater good of cybersecurity because you can't build good solutions and and defend against diverse hackers (laughs) if you don't have a diverse cybersecurity uh, talent pipeline. And so- Folding that into the discussion around my passion for diversity and cybersecurity and how our company model promotes that as well, painted a very clear picture of the fact that, again, this model is great. It's going to make money. All of those things are important to anyone, but it's also going to make a positive difference in this world. So let your personality shine through in the application. What's the balance between then having your answers refined versus, uh, let's say, let's say it's clunky, but it's passionate, right? Like, like what, what, what is the balance here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Yeah. That's important. Cause I feel like I, um, I can get very wordy when I'm passionate. Right. And so one thing that I do though, is I write, uh, my responses out with no filter, just all like passion shining through And then I would typically take a second look at it. I try to do this with email and everything that I do. I take a second look at it and then start to like consolidate and figure out, okay, how can I get this message across with less words? And I oftentimes when I go through that process, I can distill it down for, I would say by at least like 30 to 40%. And I think that is enough balance for me to uh, let that passion shine through while still being as concise and intentional as possible. Let's move into the pitch comp like being on stage itself and preparing for that pitch. But before we do that, I want to just take a step back for a moment and talk to our listeners. You know, earlier Christine mentioned about how she was at this phase where she wasn't able to actually build the product herself just for lack of, you know, her own ability to code and build the product. Uh, and then um, use these pitch competitions as a way to actually start to get the the money going for this thing to be able to fund product development. So my question for you listeners is where are you going to turn when you need to fund that product development and who, what partner are you going to look at? Well, uh, if you're still looking and if you need a partner, Akeva is the software development partner to help you go from zero to one. So whether that's blockchain or no chain, whether it's web three or web two, mobile apps or SaaS, Akeva builds it at startup speed and enterprise level refinement. And that's exactly why startups like Stride Health, Aveno, Olive, Side, and many more trust Akeva from their first dollar all the way to their billion dollar valuation. And they're here and they're ready to help you become the goat to market. Anyone, to anytime someone asks me for a software dev recommendation, I turn to Akeva. Uh, literally just yesterday, um, one of our clients, um, we had just created their pitch. Uh, one of the elements that was in their pitch deck was their upcoming product roadmap. And there's a few, you know, they have version one ready to go, but very shortly after that, they need to scale it up to, to add in features three, four, and you know, two through five into that. And so I asked them, I was like, like, what's your plan for that? Do you need to talk to someone? And they were like, yes, like we, you know, we got to make sure this doesn't, this isn't built on a house of cards uh, and that we can actually scale the product the right way. And so right away, I uh, made their intro to Akeva and they're going to have a conversation. So if those are the kind of conversations you need help with, Akeva is your partner for helping build that product roadmap and making sure that you're going to build something that 
you know, is worth people using, but also scales as your company grows. And their co-founder is also a tech startup founder himself separately. So they know exactly what the founder journey is like and what to build at what stage. For more information, head to akava.io. That's A-K-A-V-A dot I-O, akava dot I-O. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we are talking with Christine Iswakor, the founder and CEO of Cyber Popup. And we're talking about how to win big money in pitch competitions. Now, right before the break, I mentioned let's transition into the actual pitch itself. So what does your preparation process look like in putting together your pitch before you're going to go on stage? Um, Sure. So I think that um, having a solid story and pitch is really important, right? And you mentioned this before, I I have worked with you in 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 the past, and I think that's one of the first sort of foundational, like critical pieces, the, the story that you tell and um, at least speaking for myself, my confidence in that story is ha- half the battle. And so, so yeah, I think in terms of preparation, just having a good um, coach and a good process, a good mentor to help establish what that is, um, is uh, important. Uh, for me, writing out an entire script, even if the idea isn't to get up there and like be robotic and like all of that, but having an entire script that says, hey, this is exactly what I'm trying, this is exactly what I want to say, in pitch competitions, oftentimes the, the timing is very tight, right? And so making sure that you can convey that message in a way that is like very direct um, is important. And so, yeah, my process is like get the story and get the content as tight and like as clear as possible. Um, practice, practice, practice. Uh, and that practice is both practice on my own, practice in front of people that I trust, but then like practice in live competitions, especially leading up to some big ones. Um, and then also practicing the question and answer piece. Um, and then I would say the third element is just like hyping myself up to make sure that like I am just like in a mindset to dominate, but then also to still have fun. I think that's those are the three key elements that I would say um, are important in prep for me. Let's come back to the story element. Um, you know, and obviously, again, that's something that we worked on together uh, in helping develop what your what your pitch story should be for that. Um you know, I don't need to necessarily have you go through what your in, you know, entire like five-minute pitch is uh, in this format, but what are the elements within your pitch? And you can like allude to certain areas that you kind of saw that like, oh, this is important to hit on, or this is where people are reacting positively. Like what 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 are some of those elements that are in your story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I think that the story in the beginning, like I am talking about cybersecurity, right? And like cybersecurity is not something that people, you know, talk about every day or um, like daydream about. Everybody doesn't understand it, right? It's not super common um, if you're not in the space. And so in the beginning, um, I would tell a story about um, New Year's Eve and like this struggle that I had of like, instead of being out partying, I was working on these cybersecurity issues because I didn't have help. And I think that telling that story in the beginning leveled the playing field and made it so that whether you understood cybersecurity or not, you could relate to my story and what I was saying. And I think that drew people in. I think that's very important, especially if you're talking about a product or something that is either overly technical or that most people are not familiar with. Um, And then other components, uh, I think 
um, some pretty standard, right? Making sure that you uh, talk about the, the the problem and the size of the market and uh, what some of your, your traction is. I think all of those things are um, uh, pretty standard, but it's more of the way that you position things, right? So um, for us being an uh, early stage uh, company, um, I had to paint a picture of what was to come and like share some some of the the um, early traction and early wins, but focus more on what the the, the future might entail, um, just because of the the space that we were as we were pitching. And so I think those are elements that help. And then I would say the last piece again, it, it all goes back to the storytelling too. The last piece is like. There's, I had an element of almost like uh, surprise in the end where I told the story in the beginning as if it was some random person. And then in the end, it was, that story was about me. And I talked about like my um, uh, passion and credentials in the, in the industry. And I always get like either a gasp or like a laugh or like applause at that point. And I think those little magical moments in the story, like are very important. The numbers and all of those things are great, but you doing sharing that in a way that really connects with people and really like gets people excited, I think is one of the most important things that is often overlooked. Yeah. And, and just for, so everyone's aware, like if I recall that initial new year's Eve story, you say like, here's Chris, right. Mm-hmm. And people are, people hear that they're thinking like a blonde white guy. Right. <laughs> um, because you, I mean, you, you generally, if you hear the name Chris, you at least think of a male at, like at minimum. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then towards the end is that like reveal where you're like, I'm Chris and Chris is short for Christine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, it really does create that moment of like magic and people are like, whoa. So it's not just that this exists. It's that you've lived this problem as well. Right. And there's that whole like really nice tie in at the end there. And I want to just, um, come back to what you said for a moment about like, Hey, like the numbers are great and everything. Can you just explain a little bit more like this sort of this balance or the importance of having something around the numbers and and it like, it's not just about going up and rattling off five facts. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and just to make sure I I understand your question, you're saying like, what is the, like how valuable are the numbers essentially? More so like, like, the importance of the numbers, like numbers in and of themselves aren't going to necessarily yeah. win you things. There's got to be, they've got to have context with the yeah. story overall. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that numbers shouldn't be seen as something that just get thrown in or something that has to be there. I think you have, to me, it's important to have sort of like the journey and the story outlined and then figure out what specific numbers and data points support important elements of, of that story, right? And that can be market data, it can be like your own traction, it could be traction of similar companies, you know, whatever that is, you can begin to figure out what is the right um, information and data that I need to, to support this, um, uh, essentially like this narrative or like this, this story that I want people to understand. And so, yeah, I look at it as like data should help you convey that message versus you're just kind of spitting data at people, <laughs> which isn't fun. You lose people that way. So uh, more to that point, like, you know, do you feel that you can overcome, let's say, lack of traction or specifically revenue with being able to frame things the right way? Like, is, is, it, is it a game over if you're going up against someone who's already doing like six-figure MRR? Uh, yeah, no, not at all. I think you can you can definitely um, uh, use 
data to tell your story, whether it is in traction or again, in like market research or in like case studies of like what you've seen with other companies. I've gone up against people in pitch competitions who had a lot more revenue than than we did or a lot more bar- larger teams than we did. When I was pitching, I was the only full-time employee. <laughs> and in some cases, there were folks who had, you know, teams and like had mascots running out on stage and, and uh-huh. all of these. Things. And it's like, yeah, I think that at the end of the day, like the, 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 the story, the the op- the size of the opportunity, right? The the uh, founder story themselves, like the the story of the company, all of those things, uh, I think carry just as much weight in a lot of these situations as some of the standard metrics that people use. And I think that's one of the things that I love about uh, pitch competitions in general, right? Is that it's just a different, um, it's just a different playing field. It's a different like criteria to to get to the finish line. Let's quickly cover the, you know, the pitch is done. Usually in most of these competitions, there's going to be a couple minutes of Q&A from a panel, maybe the audience afterwards. Um, You know, you talked earlier about how you started creating that running dock of things that are going to be in these applications and also from Q&A, but any sort of tips on how to answer these questions so you come across as intelligent and, and someone they should be picking as the winner? Yeah, I think there's two things. One, um, well, actually, let me first start by saying I hate Q and A. I was not. Gonna, <laughs> I'm a. I like to like be prepared and like know what I'm talking about. When I get like impromptu and caught off guard, it's not as fun for me. <laughs> and so frameworks are important. And so there's two things. One is um, I learned a framework for answering questions, even if I like you know. Uh, wasn't sure of the answer, like whatever the case may be, there are certain things that you can do around like um, recapping, you know, what the question is to make sure that you understand it. And then tricking your, I don't know if you've seen this framework, right, but it's like tricking your brain. If you say like, okay, the two things that I would think about there, before you even think about the two things, your brain is already like trying to figure out what they are and does the work for you. And so there's these little tricks that I don't have, you know, all the time to explain here, but a framework for answering any question, having that in mind is helpful. The second piece is for me, it just took practice. I did so many investor conversations and so many pitch competitions um, where there was Q&A. And in the beginning, I fumbled almost every answer. Um, and that's why it's important to do low risk um, things first. And so I fumbled every answer. I wrote down what those questions were. I reflected on what my answer was and what it should have been because after you get off the call, that's when you're like, man, I should have said this or that. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Write it down, learn. And I think after enough times, you start to get similar questions and you've done it so much that you begin to build that muscle of knowing, okay, that didn't work that time. I'm going to say this. Um, And yeah, that, that piece was purely practice for me of writing down the questions that I got asked and uh, writing down the answer that I wish I would have said and then Uh, making sure I said it next time. (laughs) So, so you're you're almost like doing like an audit afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Can we, let's just do a little bit of like a practice exercise here of that first point you said around like how to frame your response. So uh, you know, with that little like preface language up front that you mentioned that that gives you time to think about what you're going to say. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, let's say I'm going to ask, you've just pitched and I ask you, okay, oh, hey, you know, great job. Uh, I just had one question. Um, uh, how do you plan to, to scale beyond your first 10 customers? And then what, how do you use this technique you're talking about to now answer that? Yeah. Oh, you're going to put me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> or at least just what's like the, what's the intro line you say to be able to like give yourself some time 
Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So we've given, given a lot of thought to how we scale, not just for the first 10 customers, but to the you know first 100 and beyond that, just given the market size, uh, the first thing that we'd want to do. And that's how, like, I would use that first thing that we want to do to then like, you know, think through the, the next one. So, um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's, it's almost like an like active listening, right? Like you're, you're almost like repeating the question back to them as a statement mm-hmm. to then give yourself just that extra two, three seconds to formulate your thoughts around what your actual response is. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing that is uh, important to keep in mind, and I still, it's a, it's a constant journey of learning for me as well, too. Cause like I mentioned, I don't, I do not like Q and A, but I think that reminding myself that it is okay to pause and sit in silence for a few seconds. Like I, I, I always have to remind myself of that. Like, I don't have to hurry up and jump in to answer right away, because I think that that can be something that at least I would catch myself doing early on being uncomfortable with that silence and trying to like fumble or like figure out like something to say versus just like, okay, I'm going to take a second to like gather my thoughts here and then I'm going to respond. Not only is it okay, I would say a lot of times it's actually powerful because you'll notice everyone in the room starts leaning in to pay attention if you give that, you know, couple seconds of silence, right? Like, and not only that, but if you intentionally start to slow down Mm -hmm. how you're speaking, as I'm doing mm-hmm. right now, <laughs> yeah. right? And you start to own the energy of the room and then mm-hmm. you can bring it back up to where you want to get them to. <laughs> right, yeah. You're always so good at that. I still remember it, like our like pitch practices and things like that. I would be like whipping through certain parts. You'll be like, no, you want to slow down at that part. Let that <laughs> land, let that really soak in. And I would practice that. I would, it makes a difference. And, and I've talked about this before in past episodes. Um, I guess I accidentally just did it there, but, but <laughs> if you give yourself time, you're not going to be filling gaps with, um, and, ah, uh, and that actually hurts your presence because not only, you know, we use it as a, as a space filler, cause we feel awkward, but the reality is you're, you're, you're cutting into other people's train of thought when you do that versus if you can just be silent for a couple seconds, again, you pull them in, you get them to stop their existing train of thought and just focus intently on you and you give yourself time to think while not thinking about how do I stall, which is what yep. umming and eyeing is, right? It's a, it's a safety mechanism, but ultimately it's a stall tactic. Yep, and I good. think um, a, good, a good example, this is what I've mentioned on shows before, a good example to look at is how people interview each other on news shows. So, which is what I've tried to model as a host of this show as well. When you look at, you know, watch any like late night, like news opinion show or any, really any interview on TV, right? You could watch ESPN, even if you wanted when they are interviewing someone and that person gives a response, they don't go like, Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 Like how we tend to do that in conversation with one another. They don't mm-hmm. do that. They, they, they hear what they say. They pause for a second, they reflect, and then they ask the next question. And mm-hmm. that type of cadence, if you will, is really valuable because it gives, you know, you want to show you're being thoughtful about the question that they asked. And if you have that little bit of pause, it's an, it's an indicator I'm being thoughtful. I'm not just rushing through this response or that this is not something that I, I care about. Yeah. 
I'm like, no, I don't want to agree with you because I don't <laughs> 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 I'm trying to follow the framework here. <laughs> um, so last couple of quick things I want to hit on, then we'll, run, we'll hit our recap. At what point in your journey were you like, you know what? I'm building some momentum here. And, and I just want to rattle off your wins for a moment, just if everyone's not aware. I, I gave the total summary uh, earlier on, but your actual wins over the course of a year were $20,000, $5,000, $100,000, and I believe there was also uh, the Google Google for founders, Google for Black founders grant in there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a couple of other small ones too, but yeah, that that pretty much sums it up. And the majority of those were equity free cash prizes, which is great because you're not even giving up a portion of your company in return for getting this investment, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. At what point in this winning streak did you start to say, you know what, maybe we can and should actually raise capital for this? And were the wins helping attract investors? Yeah, yeah. So. We uh, decided to kick off our round maybe six months into sort of the the year. And I want to say at that point, I maybe had like five or six pitch competition wins under the belt, all 20K and under. Um, but it was kind of at a point where like we're, we're getting uh, capital that is very helpful and that is moving moving us forward, but we know that we need a larger injection to get to that next phase. And so I continue to do pitch competitions because we need to keep things running. But at the same time, we started raising um, towards the end of the year, um, just as the grand prize competitions were coming up. So you mentioned the two 100K competitions and those were kind of back to back, like within almost like 30 days of each other, right? I think they were back to back weekends, actually. <laughs> um we're, we're, look, I don't remember. It was all a whirlwind. It was very <laughs> it was very close. Um, but uh, but yeah, I just remember like that that 30 to like 45 days went so quickly, both for those competitions and both for the round. It was like boom, we won this one. Boom, a lot more interest of like people who we were already talking to, but then new investors coming on. And then by the time we had done the second 100 k everybody was like, okay, this is like, we got to like hurry up and move on this before we get left behind. And it kind of created this sense of FOMO to where we ended up with an oversubscribed round, which is a really um, uh, exciting position to be in. Although I can say everybody says they want an oversubscribed round until you have an oversubscribed round. It was very stressful. (laughs) 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 So so yeah, I think that that momentum definitely helped in in the end. Now you successfully gathered your seed round I, I want to say after that, you made an intentional decision to pull back on additional pitch competitions. So what do you, like, when do you feel it is wise to invest time and energy into going the pitch competition strategy versus when is it time to pull back and focus elsewhere? Yeah, I think that it's, um, for lack of a better, it's like when you need to, right? Like I, I had no choice but to pitch because if we didn't, like, I would have to find another creative way to, to fund the business, right? And I think the 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 story and the um, pitch that we had was working well. And so I saw that and knew that this was a, a, a good um, uh, path to go down versus when uh, after raising the round, right? It's like we have the capital and we have what we need and we really need to focus on results. So I would say the, the one thing that I would question is like, what is your reason for pitching? If it's strictly capital um, intensive and you raise around, um, then 
you know, maybe not so much. The exposure and the connections that you're able to get through pitch competitions as well, I think is another angle to consider. Um, and so I know that in, in some of our pitch competitions, we got connected to people who wanted to become corporate partners and people who wanted to do other things. And so I think there's an element of business development that um, people might want to, to consider as well as they think about whether they continue to, to, um, to do the competitions or not. Let's begin our wrap up now. First off, Christine, where can our listeners find you and learn more? Um, yeah, sure. So I am on LinkedIn, Christine Walker. I'm the only Christine Walker that I know of, so it shouldn't be hard to find. Um, also on my website, christineswalker.com. And then for Cyber Pop-Up, any small businesses out there who need security support um, or want to partner with us or learn more, um, check out cyberpopup.com. Who is one person you want to shout out? Um, aside from you for being the best coach <laughs> ever. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on your, your show, which really it does. Um, it made a huge difference, um, not just in pitch competitions, but in um, our fundraising round and the way that I approached that. And so um, definitely want to uh, shout you out, but um, I'm going to- yeah, Aside from me though, thank you. Aside yeah, exactly. Me. I was like, <laughs> I know, I'm going to pick somebody else because I know. Um, so the one person I do want to shout out is um, Stephen Shaw from Verizon. Um, and he was he was a critical piece of like the uh, uh, P33 and TechRise uh, program. And just like the journey of like going from- uh, starting in that competition and not winning the first time. I actually lost the, the first time I pitched there, right? So like learning from those questions and going back again and winning the 20K prize to coming back at the end of the year and winning the 100K, like it was just such an amazing journey. And I learned so much in that process. And he was one of the instrumental people in kind of building that program. So yeah, definitely shout out to Stephen Shaw at Verizon. Stephen and is the an awesome dude. And the TechRise team, for sure. Yeah, and the whole team there is fantastic. Yeah. We'll now do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. The topic was winning big money pitch competitions. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. We covered a lot of ground. Um, One thing I want people to walk away with is as it pertains to the pitch itself, I think this is true regardless of your company, but especially if it's a more complex or less well-known industry, figure out a way in your pitch to level the playing field, as you said, level the playing field for the audience. Christine, one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. Um, I would say first one, like practice, 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 both on the pitch, but more importantly on the Q and A, if I feel like no matter how good you are, that's an area to get tripped up. And so the more that you can ask those questions or, or get asked those questions and answer them, the better. And then the second piece is to just, be you and have fun. Like that, that is one thing that I can say I've gotten feedback on is when I get on stage, I mean business, but I also have fun and I let my personality shine through. I always pick a theme song that gets me hype when I walk on stage and all of those little things really make a huge difference. So just be you. Actually, to that point, if I recall, I wasn't, I wasn't able to attend, but if I recall <laughs> your hundred K tech rise win, and maybe even the other one as well, I think you were wearing a Chicago bulls, like starter jacket on stage, right? <laughs> I was, I was. They reached out to me afterwards, actually. <laughs> so, ah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, like I said, there's so many different um, uh, value adds and, and benefits to competitions that people don't think about. But, but please yeah, tell I, me, please tell me they reached out saying they wanted to make a custom made cyber pop of uh, Chicago Bulls jersey. That is not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> planting that seed. That will be my next request. <laughs> 
My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Christine. Entrepreneurship is blank. Entrepreneurship is ultimate freedom. Yes, that is it. Freedom to create, freedom to live, freedom to build, freedom to, to grow people. It's just freedom to me. And I absolutely love that. Entrepreneurship is ultimate freedom. I love it. Well, listen, I've got a million more questions I could ask you. And listeners, if you've got questions that are following up and bubbling up in your head that you want to ask Christine, guess what? It doesn't end here. The whole first week that this episode airs, we got Christine hopping into the Goat to Market Club. That's our online founder community where she's going to be doing an Ask Me Anything. You can follow up with more questions around winning pitch competitions or other things you might, other questions you might have around how she's growing and scaling cyber pop-up, cybersecurity industry, and other things about the journey of a founder. To join the Goat to Market Club, you just have to go to startuphypeman.com slash gtm club, startuphypeman.com slash gtm club. It's free to join. Your first month is free, and then it's $9 a month after that. You can cancel anytime. And in addition to great AMAs with, with people like Christine and all of our podcast guests moving forward in this season, We've also got our monthly strategy drops, teaching traction and growth strategies, and a whole lot more for you there. So come on in, join us amongst the other goats inside the Goat to Market Club. Christine, thank you once again for joining us today on the Goat to Market Show. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you again to our guests for joining and sharing their knowledge. Did you like what you heard? Well, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app before you head out of here. And while you're at it, who's one friend who you think would find value in hearing today's conversation? Go ahead and share the episode with them. I would really appreciate it. And I thank you for doing that. Remember, we've got more going down with our guest inside Goat to Market Club. Think of it like the after show, the after party, the after hours special. Our guest is going to hop inside the club and do an Ask Me Anything. So you can follow up with any of those questions that came to mind as you were listening. You can follow up and ask them to our guest inside our club. To join, just head to startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club. GTM Club is $9 a month, but your first month is free. You can cancel anytime. And you're not only getting the AMAs, you're also getting our monthly strategy drops that are for members only, where we're teaching hyper-specific tactical go-to-market strategies, plus cool member-to-member interactions and other bonus resources. All of that happens inside the club. So again, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. We'll see you inside the club and we'll see you next week. But before you head out, remember, why be a unicorn when you can be the GOAT?